You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This is Tanya Pinkins, and you're listening to my podcast, You Can't Say That. And it is May 12th, and we are almost three months into the COVID-19 lockdown. And before lockdown, I had banked over half a year of podcasts and was going to take a lot of time off. But then I thought the world as we know it has changed. And I wanted to check in with artists about how they're surviving and what they see for the future. So my next guest is a playwright, an actor, a producer, a director, a television writer. And we met in New York um, when I went to a programming for an organization he founded called The New Black Fest. And the New Black Fest is described on its website as a theater festival, a movement, a call to action inspired by the state of black theater in the 21st century. Please welcome Keith Joseph Atkins. Hey Keith, how you doing? Good, good. How are you? So glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. Oh, absolutely. So I have a million questions for you. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, you're in LA, right? Yes, like currently, yes. So what's, you know, what's the state of life there right now? Well, um, for the most part, you so saw I was, I was working on a television show. Key um, Valley, which my guest, I had Katori Hall on here. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, I was, I'm not on Key Valley anymore. I was on another show called um, The Witches of New York, oh. um, which is a new Netflix show um, that's sort of in progress, basically. Um, but when the um, sort of shutdown happened or the shutdown order or stay-at-home order happened, we were still in the room. And then we um, obviously were told we were not coming back to the room. And so we were doing the last couple of writing rooms uh, virtually. And so I think at that point, everyone was just sort of still looking over their shoulder, like, what's really going on? Like, what does this mean? You know, um, and, um, and so people were sort of still kind of casual and still very, very hopeful about it resolving itself within a couple of weeks, with, or at least within a month. Um, and obviously, you know, um, that didn't happen quite the way people wanted it to happen. And so currently, you know, um, I'm at home pretty much locked in except to go to the grocery store. Um, even though the governor of California has lifted the stay-at-home order, um, you know, people are, are definitely out more, but I'm not because I'm one of those people who's kind of like, well, I hear what you're saying, but I, I just still want to protect myself and sort of read between the lines and make sure that it is safe. Um, so, so I'm good, but I do notice that sort of collectively the Los Angeles community are out and about as if the storm is over. Yeah. Um, even like I think a week or so, even before the stay-at-home order was lifted, I mean, I saw lots of people with maskless, not practicing social distancing. Um, so it's a weird kind of like, you know, and you lived here, Tanya, so you understand like California has a sort of laid-back manana kind of attitude about a lot of things. And so right. I, people feel a little invincible because it's the weather is nice. Mm-hmm. That's like a, you know, a replacement for health. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, yeah. no, just because it's sunny don't mean you safe. 
I, that's when I go walking over by the Hudson River here in New York, people are walking without masks and it's like they think that the river is somehow protecting them from the virus or something. <laughs> Man, that's crazy. So crazy. Yeah. So, no, it's it's very interesting. There's certainly a, a level of invincibility out here, at least, and obviously nationally. Um, I just think it's there. I think there's just a built in American um, invincibility that comes from perceiving ourselves as first world and therefore invincible and entitled and privileged, despite what the rest of the world is navigating, you know? And it's interesting that that idea of ourself is still holding strong, even though we are the COVID-19 epicenter of the world with three to four times more cases and deaths than any place in the world. We still, we're number one in death and and disease. Right, Right. exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's very, it's very interesting because like the invincibility quotient, if you want to call it that, definitely, you know, has two sides to it, obviously, right? Sort of the American, you know, we're invincible, so we can do anything and we can sort of, you know, cut down the trees and build a settlement, you know, despite who it hurts or whatever. And then um, the flip side of that is obviously in situations like this, like, yo, invincibility is not really a variable in this situation. <laughs> Like invincibility means like taking, keeping your butt in the house and distancing when you're out, you know? Um, so it's very curious and interesting, you know? I was just um, emailing with someone in Israel today mm. who has five-year-old twins and Israel is opening up kindergarten this week. Wow. And I told her, tell me more. <laughs> tell me more. How is that happening? We <laughs> right. don't yet have a um, neutralizing antibody I was speaking with the head of Quest Laboratories, and he said, maybe by Q3, Q4, we'll have a neutralizing antibody. Mm. And then we need to follow people with that for years to see how long it lasts. Mm, mm, mm. So, yeah, it's, it's some real life happening on these streets, you know. Um, and I was talking to, I was Zooming with a good friend of mine in North Carolina um, a few days ago, an actor, a friend of mine. Um, and we were just talking about, like, you know, it's almost like an apocalyptic movie, you know, Uh, like the early sort of uh, uh, episodes of Walking Dead and or Fear Walking Dead, um, where everyone's sort of like, there's a virus, I believe, and people are being impacted by it, you know, and only a few people are really sort of taking it seriously, you know, and we were like talking about how perhaps in a year, he and I are going to be the few people who are going to still be Zooming while everybody's out and about. (laughs) Like, no, we're not going outside, we're still going to (laughs) Zoom. Well, you know, you and I both love the apocalyptic worlds. Yeah. Um, yes. I got to be on Fear of the Walking Dead. I so know. Yeah. I was so excited to see you. And, you know, I, I, um, I had a meeting with the creators of the show. Um, uh, I think it was right after when I was sort of the end of P-Valley, Katori's P-Valley for Star. So that was maybe a year and a half ago. And I think you had just... Um, you know, did an arc on the show and right. so I was talking to them about, I think your name came up in my meeting with them and they were like, yeah, Ty. I was like, yes. Oh my God. They were like, Ty is amazing. You can't wait to, we can't wait for you to see the episode. I mean, you know, the episodes, plural that she's going to be in. I was like, cool. Yeah. Um, so. So I was looking at your television resume. We're going to get to your playwriting resume, but I want to look at your television resume because there's so many things on there, the jobs that you have and, I think a lot of times people don't understand. I mean, because I know a lot of television writers, I have a 
kind of understanding of the different jobs that people have in television writing. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of theater writers are going to be going to television or starting to figure out how to tell stories in remote ways. I saw that Lionsgate put out a list of suggestions that they only make shows with people who are already quarantined together. Mm. You see that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so it says you've been a writer. You've been a staff writer. You've been a co-producer. You've been a story editor. Right. You've been an executive story editor. Can you give me a sense of what are those distinctions in job titles in television? Um, well, those distinctions are simply about um, seniority, right? So um, it's, and it's all based on, so basically your first year in television, on a television show, you are, every, you're a writer no matter what title you have. Um, you're just, you're, you're writing, you're writing or, and or you're participating in the crafting of a story or a series whenever you're in that writer's room. So your first year, you're considered a staff writer. Um, and then normally with those, with that title, you, um, you're paid a, you know, a staff writer's salary weekly. Um, you're often given two scripts to write. Um, the first one you normally do not get paid for, but you do get the residuals for it. So that's like the first year it's called staff writer. And then the second year on the show, you're, you're um, a story editor. And then in that, at that point, if you get scripts, you get paid for any scripts that you write, unlike the staff writer who doesn't get paid for the first script. And then the third um, year on a show, um, or your third year in writing in the industry, you're considered executive story editor. The fourth year, or the fourth show, if you want to call fourth show, fourth season, um, is considered co-producer. Co- um, and then it goes to producer, uh, and then it keeps going, supervising, consulting, um, co-executive, executive. So it's all, it all sort of depends on uh, what year you're in, and you're in the year. So I actually had to start all over again. So... Back in the early aughts, I um, came out of grad school and got a job on Girlfriend, which was a, a CW show. Yes. Right. And so I was there as a staff writer because it was my first job ever. Um, and then I, I um, came out of that show as an executive story editor. So then I took a long pause because I didn't think I was going to go back to television. I came back to New York to really sort of have my theater career because I didn't have it. I got kind of pulled, plucked away very quickly after grad school to television. So when I came back out here and um, got staffed on The Good Fight, which is a spinoff of The Good Wife for um, CBS All Access, I had to start all over as a staff uh, writer. <laughs> so it's like, it's, you know, even though, so this is basically my seventh year collectively in television. Um, I'm at, I'm now at producer level, thankfully. Um, on the, on the new show, the new, um, which is a New York show. But does it have, it, okay, I understand that as a writer, you get, don't get paid for the first script, but does each of these hierarchical name changes of seniority carry with them more money, more what? What's the meaning? Yeah, yeah so each, so each, um, each level or, you know, title from staff writer to producer, each has its own um, salary. So, yeah, so the salary increases each year. So if you have really great reps, um, hopefully, the, you know, the bump year to year is significant enough. But sometimes what happens in between the executive story editor and the producer, those three sort of titles, the salary increases just slightly. Um, but once you I think you get beyond producer, then the then it's bumped much more significantly. Um, but um 
And what's the bump to showrunner? <laughs> well, showrunner, that's significant. So, like, if you get your own show, um, I don't know. I've read some places that showrunners make, man, I want to say, like, anywhere from fifteen to $30,000 a week. Or, yeah, a week. Or, yeah, I think it is a week. Yeah, per week. Um, and more, obviously. Right. Yeah. Just for the title. Just for the title alone. And yeah, yeah, just for the title alone. And normally, well, I can't say that's not normal, but um, what you have two different type of executive producers. You have executive producers who have um, sort of built, um, have sort of come through the ranks and sort of from staff writer all the way up to executive producer because of the number of years they've been working, right? And so that's one type of executive store, uh, executive producer who have their salary based on just their seniority. And then mm -hmm. the other um, executive producer happens when you say, example, go from a co-producer and then suddenly you have your own, you sold your own show and you're now an executive producer on your own show. So that salary is um, built around your, you being the creator of the show and then long, and the potential longevity of the show as well as your weekly salary. So that salary tends to be higher than that executive um, producer who's just sort of like, you know, being pulled up through the ranks just on a linear line, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah. So you came back to do theater and then mm -hmm. you went back again. Tell me why, 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 why? <laughs> <laughs> it's a complicated story. Of course, that's what I want to know. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Ty, you know, um, and you and I have had conversations about American theater and, and, you know, I can't, I love it again. Like I got plucked out of um, theater really quickly right out of grad school and, and was in television. And I felt like I never really had a chance to really experience theater professionally in New York city. Um, so I wanted to come back after working on girlfriend, after being in LA for five years, I came back to New York and I created the new black fest and, you know, and, you know, continued and sort of started having a theater career. Um, but then it became very, clear to me and I don't know if just out of my own maturity um, or, or my own sort of uh, personal maturity or sort of creative maturity that theater was a very limited space to tell story um, and there was a lot of hands involved and a lot of filters involved as far as what's produced and what's even and who's commissioned or who's even read like I'm one of the lucky people that I'm actually commissioned and read and every so often I get a production and that's like a rarity an anomaly in theater, right? Mm -hmm. A production. Um, and so when I kind of really kind of sat back and looked at that, I was like, hmm, playwriting is, has a very low ceiling of exposure. And so you're sitting at home, you know, wanting to tell all these stories, but you have to wait until somebody produces you. And that seems a little um, not interesting to me because I'm an active person and I'm very mm -hmm. proactive. Um, so I started sort of calling myself a storyteller um, and just, and just finding all possible ways to tell story and to continue to tell story, which sort of reopened my interest in television because I realized that there was so much television happening um, at the time of, of this sort of epiphany for me that um, seemed much more inclusive um, and so much more expansive in the type of um, genre and points of views and the impact it was having on a much larger sort of international scale as far as exposing story. Um, and so I thought, you know, maybe I should sort of go back into that that realm, that sort of TV film 
sector space, um, even though it also has obviously its obstacles and it's, you know, it's uh, Hollywood so white and all those things are still very real. Like most of the television rooms I, I get hired into, I'm the only person of color um, and obviously the only black person, um, often the only male or definitely the only black male. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's definitely a challenge, but, um, I do feel like there are many more, um, uh, uh, advocates out in the industry now who are wanting diversity and inclusion and, uh, and authority and truth, um, as opposed to theater that, you know, it's still very limited, you know? Um, so that's why I decided to sort of uh, stick my toe back into, um, TV world, TV film world. So in this moment in time where, you know, resources are funneling quickly to the top mm -hmm. and theater for the moment, live theater is dead. Mm. And uh, before it seemed, before I even sort of knew that this was going to last into next year, I began to wonder, did this mean that when things open up, you know, black theaters, Latino theaters, uh, Native American theaters, we always get the money last. Mm. Um, when things open back up again, have you been thinking about, are we going to get it at all? Since there's going to be a very limited amount of resources, you know, are we going back to the end of the line again for them? Mm, that's a very, that's, that's a very deep question. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, the, the history shows us and the most more recent history shows us that funding usually is funneled to the larger institutions. And, you know, even I think, you know, like in the last five or seven years, some of the smaller um, black and um, uh, people of color um, and other you know, women's theaters and, and that are small have been, funds have been yanked from them um, and sort of funneled into, you know, these larger institutions, right? Even the larger institutions have found ways to sort of create spaces for so-called diversity and um, diversity and inclusion, which then makes the smaller companies that that is their mission statement um, not as you know um, attractive because you can get all that at the larger institution. Um, and so, when you even think about you know what's happening now with the you know the businesses and the uh, the recovery package that the government is sort of, um, you know, handing out to folks. Like, you know, you hear about the small businesses who are suffering, the small businesses that have to close because they're not being, being able to survive. And so I imagine that the same thing is gonna happen to theater. Um, um, and, and it's already happening, you know, um, where smaller theater companies really have to figure out whether or not they're gonna be able to survive the next month, um, mm. you know, and yeah, so I think it's it's a very it's a very complicated, scary thing. And I was just talking to my managers yesterday about TV and film. They were saying that, you know, because you know what's really curious and interesting is that I'm continuing to have pitching pitch meetings with production companies and producers, as well as conversations around develop developing projects, right? And I was saying to my manager yesterday, I was like, well, okay, so say for example, my show is I pitch something and it is greenlit. When are they going to do it? You know, <laughs> it's like, when are they going to produce it? Because, you know, right now, like, who's going to walk into a set and, um, and, uh, you know, yes, yeah, and, and risk their health, you know? And they were saying, well, 
there's there's sort of a reimagining of of the TV sector now where they're thinking about very few people will be on set. It'll be very very closed, um, you know, and very tight lipped. And so that sounds like a downsizing. That sounds and that and that's only for high end shows. Right, but uh, but that's corporate America's dream. Great, right. we found a way to get rid of all these union people that we have to pay a lot of money to. Right now, we just can't have you around. It's a health hazard to have a hundred musicians or thirty right. musicians or fifty crew guys. We can't right. have you anymore. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So they drop down to the indie gorilla model to do everything. Yes, exactly. That's where we're going to have to do. Um, you know, and someone was saying recently too, like, you know, even with the, with actors, you know, um, who, you know, normally work in collaborative spaces, um, with, 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 you know, COVID-19, it's like, well, perhaps now you need to have CGI actors because, <laughs> you know, like, which then sort of starts downsizing real life people, you know, real life actors. Yeah. That was part of Lionsgate's plan was CGI actors. And I, what I wasn't clear about was, does that mean they want to use deep fake and pay you for the right to use your image, which of course they're going to do with superstars, or does that mean they're going to do this thing that you can do on AI now, which a lot of my ad friends do, where they just, uh, this is their job. They take pictures of people who you associate with on your social media and then they make a composite human being right. and add their pitch to you so do they mean cgi actors like composite human beings that don't exist i i think so i think what you what you just described i think is probably what, where it's going because i think recently there was a, a cgi actress actor that um just signed with caa oh limaquilla yeah right oh my god Right. That, and that's very telling. Oh, my God. It's very telling. And, 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 and I mean, you know, thinking about it as a, in a business sense, even though it's hard to think about it that way, but in a business sense, it kind of makes sense if indeed COVID-19 sort of extends longer than, you know, um, anticipated, if there's another wave or two or three um, and actors and whoever else is sort of like, I'm not going into any kind of collaborative space to shoot anything with anybody, then you are going to need content because clearly content is still being encouraged. Like I said, I'm still having meetings where as if nothing, I've had more meetings and more pitches during this um, stay at home order during the pandemic than I've had prior to it. Mm. I'm constantly busy. I'm like, I can't even just sort of sit back and kind of just feel like, yeah, what's going on in the world? Because I'm pitching and talking about television shows. Wow. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So they definitely are stockpiling content. Um, and yeah, like, you know, worst case scenario is, you know, this is extended for a longer time period. And so you're going to have to have somebody, <laughs> some kind of images to sort of put in the content. So there you got, you got CGI folks. Do you know Neil Stevenson's work? The name sounds really familiar. Um, he's a science fiction speculative yes. fiction writer, and yes. uh, he wrote uh, a, a book in 1995. I think he wrote Zodiac. That's one of his mm -hmm. novels, yes. No Crash. And he wrote a book, The Diamond Age, uh, Young Ladies Illustrated Primer, 
in 95, which was uh, predicting nanotechnology and Dynabooks and robotics. And mm -hmm. as early as 95, there were things in his book called Ractors, which was if you were an actor, you just um, were like the audio narration of an avatar. And mm. people could buy content and choose what yeah. raptors they wanted to um, mm. animate the content that they wanted to see. Mm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Tell you, that's exactly it. <laughs> so actors will be working with their voices. Oof. You know, yeah. it's interesting. You know, even like I, I was thinking about um, uh, Octavia Butler's um, Parable of the Sore. And Just reading that yeah right and you know that was also written in i think 1992 if i'm not mistaken 1993 um and she also sort of predicted what's happening right now i think i think parable takes place in 2025 mm -hmm. but, you know it's it's one single government it's one singular government um and you know if you're sort of lucky enough to um, I don't think it's about luck. I think you have a certain e e income bracket and or privilege. You were able to sort of be protected by the government and live in government housing that keeps you, you know, um, away from the sort of um, wild west that the world has become, at least this country has become. It's like post virus, like the novel takes place. It's like a post virus and it's post, um, you know, government and economic collapse and, you know, people of color are living in abandoned gated communities once occupied by white people, you know, um, and then there's like these people who are addicted to this drug called pyro that makes them want to set things on fire. And mm -hmm. you know, there's people who are starving because of the economic collapse and they sort of move in this very slow kind of um, rhythm, much like zombies. Um, and, they, when they, and they can sense when you've eaten, so they kind of start walking toward you, but they can't get to you fast enough because they're going so slow. You know, it's just so <laughs> crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And just the other, and then so, and there's all these feral dogs who are just like loose and running in packs and sort of attacking you because they're hungry too, right? And, um, and recently in California, I mean, at least in LA, um, there's been an increase in coyote um, sightings. Um, right. Like deeper into the city. Like even, I live in the Crenshaw sort of Baldwin, Here's, Baldwin Hills area, and there's been so many coyote sightings. There was one in my backyard earlier last week. Wow. Um, I, don't know they, hmm? seen, I don't know if you've seen Venus Sood's piece on um, Quibi. She's got this piece called The Stranger that's five minutes, 13 five-minute segments, and coyotes play a very big part in mm. that in, in L.A. Wow. That's interesting. I'm going to check that out. Oh, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing. It's okay. kind of amazing how uh, she was saying that when she met with Katzenberg about uh, being on the thing, she had no interest. But the way he pitched it to her with the, the telephone as the great equalizer, because no matter how poor people are in the poorest African nations, everybody has a telephone. Mm -hmm. And this idea that you could have content on a telephone and so she made this very meta show about the the technology <laughs> and what the technology, you know, kind of in a, in a black mirror kind of world. It could have been a black mirror episode, right. but she's done it in the five minute Quibi, Quibi model. Wow. And what's it called again? Stranger? It's called The Stranger and it's on Quibi. 
Quibi. Okay, great. And you also got me thinking about Fall, which is another Neil Stevenson book, which is, I feel like we're there too, mm -hmm. um, that in Fall, it's about a man who has put in his will that when he dies, he wants his consciousness uploaded to the cloud. But the world that you find yourself in before that happens is a world where people no longer agree on what is a fact. Mm. And mm -hmm. so if you want to travel on land, you have to obey the rules and laws of each community as you travel through it. Like there's a community that burns crosses, but it means something different than what the Ku Klux Klan meant when they burned crosses. Wow. And there's this sense that people just are joining together around whatever they mutually believe and agree upon. And mm. There's so much disinformation right now. I, I had a kind of breakdown last week around what is real. You know, yes. 45, because I don't speak that brand name, is putting out that this virus is, you know, overinflated and not real. He's yes. pushing that out already. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's, I can't even, I think, yeah, I had a breakdown too, probably like a month ago when I was watching the news. I decided one day just to watch the news all day. Because I just said, let me just really try to understand what's happening. And I was just like, there is this person, this 45 is just lying out of the back of his head. Like just, and, and then the question is, why? Why would you want to lie? Like, why is this, like, are you that inept? Are you that evil? I don't think that. I don't think he's inept. I think it is strategy. I mean, he says, mm. Mein Kampf, you know, he reads, that's on his bedside and, and was it Goebbels who said, and it became Hitler's mission, you know, a lie told once is a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes a truth. Right. I think this is pure strategy. Mm. And, you know, traditionally when a country's in trouble, they don't want to switch leadership. Right. So the longer this trouble goes on, yes. as much as, you know, the press wants to tell you there'll be a change, people don't want to change ships in the middle of trouble. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I was just saying that to someone. Even like, even when, it, when um, the uh, Georgia governor decided to open up um, uh, Georgia <laughs> um, and some of, the, some of the sort of first things that he was opening were like, you know, hair salons and tattoo parlors and, you know, uh, you know, barbershops. And I thought to myself, and movie theaters or whatever. And I thought to myself, like, how are those things essential? How are those priorities? And so how is it mean that you're just trying to put people back into the world so they can then be exposed, so then more people can be sick, and so then you can then shut it down again in a much more national way and then say, oh, you know something, we just, we got to have the same president because we ain't got time to be worried about nothing. You can't even go out and vote. I mean, it just, it just seems so reckless in a way that's like just not believable. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It's not even logical. Well, but if you, if, I mean, I'm, you know, a total conspiracy theorist and I like to play devil's advocate. And if mm -hmm. you think that in terms of the voting population, African-Americans, we are the largest consistent voting block. And even if we've been down in the last few years, we are the largest consistent voting block. Whereas uh, Caucasian Americans are the the smallest voting block. They're the largest population, but they don't consistently vote right. for the size of their population. So 
you know, we it is dependent on us. We keep saving democracy in America. Yeah. And now we're in the midst of a virus that is taking us out yes. at a higher level. Right. So reopening organizations that are going to impact our health yes. has a direct effect on yep. election outcomes. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. Definitely. That, that's definitely that's definitely an angle to look at it. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Scary. Very scary. I was I was talking actually I was talking to Katori um, Hall a couple of days ago because uh, it was her birthday and then it was Mother's Day. So I, yeah, I just said, let me just reach out to her and give her a double double hug. And um, and she was like, it's crazy out here. Right. <laughs> I was like, it is crazy. And um, I said, um, we may have to go underground. And she was like, no, we cannot go underground. I was like, we may have to do something because um, we are just the most vulnerable community and have historically been vulnerable. Like we're, they always find a way to like stick their hand in and sort of shake us up, you know. Um, it's always it's just yeah, it's, it's crazy. Hi, this is Tanya Pinkins. That was part one of my conversation with playwright, television writer Keith Joseph Atkins. Please come back for part two of You Can't Say That on the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.